Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. I want every day to be a fresh start on expanding what is possible, is a quote from the American television personality, entrepreneur, and philanthropist, Oprah Winfrey, regularly regarded as one of the most influential people in the world. I thought this was a fitting quote for our guest today the leader of an organization at the forefront of helping individuals, businesses, and the broader community to start something and make bigger things happen. Our guest is Sarah Hunter, Managing Director of Officeworks, Australia's leading supplier of office products and solutions with 167 stores and over 9,000 team members. Prior to this, she held various general management positions and was the Demerger Project Director at Coles. She also worked in the United Kingdom for more than 10 years across banking and airports, having held senior commercial roles at Gatwick Airport and the British Airports Authority. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in Japan, South Africa, in the United Kingdom, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, Executive Search and Board Advisory. In a riveting discussion, Sarah brings to life the importance of leadership, sharing personal experiences across Australia and the United Kingdom, having to adapt and thrive in different industries, from professional services, sport, banking, airports, and now to the fast-paced arena of retail. She touches on the attitude not to only achieve, but also unlock potential as a leader. Finally, Sarah reminds us of the significance of not losing sight of one's purpose, priorities, and what really matters. So sit back and enjoy leadership, a choice, and a privilege. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. Nice to be here. Sarah, what's your one golden rule in business? When opportunity comes, how do you seize the moment? My one golden rule is to employ the most capable people you can and to make sure that you're aligned from a values perspective. That's my one golden rule. And so when opportunity comes, when I meet someone who I want to be part of our business, who I think can contribute to our business, who brings great values, I will do everything I can to push the boat out and recruit that person because I really passionately believe that we're only as good as our people. You know, we all run people-based businesses and it's really important that we run, we have diverse teams that represent the customers we serve. So, at the end of the day, I'm only as good as my team and my team's only as good as their team. So, recruit the best people that you can afford 
um, who represent your values because it's really important that you're delivering a line to your values and purpose as an organisation as well. And how do you actually glean that? I know recruitment is a can be a tricky sort of process and some people are really good at telling you what they think you need to hear. How do you actually test for values? I think in the first instance as an organisation, you need to be really clear on what your values are and that's uh, and, and aligned behind them. We've just done a two-year process. We're still working on it with a cultural anthropologist to help us work on what our, our organisational values are. And our values were created by 24 team members from around the business, not by the leadership team, but by them. And our values are we are good humans, we are bold, and we are curious. Uh, the best measure of success, I think, around values is when you try them on, does it feel like you? Does it feel like the special source in the organisation? And then you build it through your EVP work and you build it through um, how you communicate with candidates. And pretty quickly, you figure out if they feel like someone who is the right fit for Officeworks because they are good humans, they are bold and they are curious and they can demonstrate that through how they approach an interview, but also how they've approached their careers. Attitude everything then, is it? Uh, recruit for will, train for skill is a very, well, what a very wise person taught me and told me about 20 plus years ago. And in this kind of current environment where throughout my career and throughout our, you know, my children's lives, they will have many careers and they will need to retrain and reskill yep. many, many times over, then I think that's a really good philosophy. You know, it particularly aligns to purpose-led organisations. You want to recruit people who align to your values and believe in the purpose of the business and then train them and build them and grow their careers um, so they can have a multitude of different experiences and opportunities within one organisation. So how does diversity fit in the whole whole suite of ideas? Yeah, well, it starts with, you know, you have to represent the communities and the customers you serve, particularly in a retail organisation. Our decision-making is only ever as good as, you know, our diversity of thought and, and representing the views and understanding of our customers. So for us, you know, as a retailer, um, we certainly more than 50% of our customers are female, but also more broadly than that, you know, it's about representing the communities in which we serve. That's not just a gender bias. So we need really good thinking around small businesses around our table because, Small and micro businesses and mid-sized businesses are a really important part of our customer base. So, if their voice isn't around our decision-making tables, then there's a problem. Similarly, we need diversity in terms of identity. So, you know, it's really important that all of our team members, regardless of how they identify, can feel that they have a voice because that represents community. And equally, something we've been really passionate about across West Farmers and Officeworks is making sure we're at parity or better than, which we are at Officeworks, in terms of Indigenous employment, because we recognise that more than 3% of our community are First Nations people, and therefore, it's important we represent them as well. So, when we talk about diversity at Officeworks, we talk about diversity and belonging, not diversity and inclusion. And belonging is about every team member feeling that can bring their whole selves to work and contribute to that discussion and contribute to those decisions to help us best make decisions for our customers. And, uh, and ultimately, that will deliver the best possible commercial return. What does bringing whole self to work mean? And I hear that word all the time. Is that the new catchphrase out there? And I should not be bringing my whole self to work, Sarah, or, or not? 
Or am I not allowed to? Well, I hope so, Greg. I hope you are bringing your whole self to work. And um, from the couple of conversations we've had, I think you do. So (laughs) rest assured. Um, Look, I think for me, what does it mean for me personally is as I've grown up in my career and I've built my career over time, there were really big periods in my career where I wasn't being me where I wasn't authentically being myself and I was having to pretend to be someone else to fit into the environment that I was put in. Okay. So in my first, very first job out of university, I was quite young relative to the group that I was leading. I was leading a team. And my employer told me very specifically in my letter of employment, I was not allowed to tell anyone how old I was. Really? That doesn't allow me to bring my whole self to work. Right. No, not at all. So discrimination forms in a variety of ways. And for me, it's about, you know, there's a lot of research around this. Authentic leadership, it's another buzzword that's out there. Yep. The way I like to say it is actually I think you give your best performance when you are yourself and you truly connect with your personal purpose and you're in an organisation that embraces that and allows you to be the best version of yourself. That's how I get the best performance out of my team. Okay. Now, let me challenge you a little bit. Diversity of thought, I couldn't agree more. Yep. But as a search consultant, I look at every industry and people seem to go in and raid the opposition or close to, okay? So, i.e., I go and raid another retailer. So, if I was going to ask you a question around diversity of thought in your organization, which is retail, how does that differ in your mind compared to another successful retailer? Yeah. Because um, otherwise, think, is it really diversity of thought or is it just we've got diverse yeah. people in the operation? Yeah, I, I think to find diversity in the truest sense and diversity of thought requires real courage. It requires real courage. So I remember being one of a very, very small number of Female. In fact, I think there was only two, maybe three female GMs at Coles when I joined out of quite a large population, probably 70, I would say. So I was certainly diverse in terms of my thinking because I represented the majority of the customer base, but I was also unusual because I was female. But my diversity of thought was broader than that because I wasn't a retailer. I joined from running an airport and being part of an airport organization. Now, airports particularly depending on the airport that you're talking about, in my case it was Gatwick, have very large retail businesses. Over 50% of the income roughly came from from, uh, retail. So I understood retail, but I didn't come from a competitor of retail. So the boldness of embracing that diversity of thought came from my boss who hired me at the time and to say, actually, sometimes you need different thinking and different thinking will ultimately help us solve problems differently or give us a different perspective that will potentially give us a commercial edge. And I think, um, you know, certainly I've tried to embrace that in how I think about the general managers at Officeworks and in my business. So I always tell them the hint is in general (laughs) in the title and encourage them, you know, mindful of not moving people for the sake of moving, but actually if someone wants to be the managing director of Officeworks at some point in the future when I go on to do something else, I want them to have the right breadth of skills and diversity of experience to enable them to tackle 
problems that they never knew that they would have to deal with or opportunities they never expected. So the diversity of me having worked in a variety of different sectors has given me a breadth of experience I can draw from um, that helps me ask better questions and hopefully helps the business deliver differently. And I think diversity of thought, if you embrace it, can make that happen. And I'll give you a practical example. When I joined Officeworks three and a half years ago, there was a a lady running marketing on an acting basis, but she actually ran sustainability. Mm -hmm. And when I had a conversation with her, um, her name's Alex Daly, and I had a conversation with her, she told me all about her background and she'd worked at Kmart. She's worked in retail for most of her career. She worked in global sourcing and she came with a merchandise background, right? But she'd found a passion for sustainability from her global sourcing background and therefore was exploring and learning and teaching herself all about sustainability. And she thought she'd try on a different hat. So when our head of marketing left, she picked up the acting accountability for that. Alex is now my GM of people. Yeah, right. Because she understands our business and she understands our people and she understands our values and the special source and what makes us commercially successful. And her change of perspective has changed how we think about our team and how we recruit and retain and develop them. So I really believe that diversity of thought isn't just about sector diversity and isn't just about gender or religious or age diversity. It's actually about embracing different perspectives so you ask better questions. Okay. So embracing better perspectives. You spent a number of years in the UK. Mm-hmm. What was your thoughts on their diversity thinking compared to us? Yeah, well, I think um, I would never have gone to the UK. I, I went like the traditional Aussie of, of the era, packed up for six months and stayed 11 years, much to my father's you know delight when I decided to come home because I think he never thought I'd come back. Um, but really what kept me in London was the chance to embrace new experiences with a pace that just didn't happen in Australia because we weren't diverse, because we were very structured in our thinking around uh, employment and how we gave people opportunities. It was very hierarchical. It was very structured on a regime and time served in role. And it's interesting because the UK is different to London. London's such a microcosm. You know, I, I had never seen such ethnic diversity, so many languages spoken as I walked down the street as I had in London. So it really taught me that in a tight labour market, something Australia is experiencing now, Mm -hmm. in those days, London was a very, very tight labour market and it requires you to run your business in the most commercial way. It required the leaders to embrace diversity and also to be bold around making people decisions to promote ahead of time. So that created huge opportunity for me. And I have no doubt I wouldn't be in the position I am today if I'd not taken that opportunity. Mm-hmm. If I'd stayed in Australia, the fact I was young and female um, would have meant my career went slower. So where are we at now, do you think? Well, I think Australia has a huge opportunity, right? If you if you think about London 20 years ago, look, we're certainly in a very, very tight labour market. But I think that creates opportunity for us to be bolder about thinking about how do we get workforce participation moving. I'm a proud member of CEW and, you know, one of the things that we are really, really passionate about is is how do you grow workforce participation, not just female workforce participation and how do we change the systems 
that are prohibiting that to happen, but also complete workforce participation. The Indigenous community, our First Nations people, you know, um, more broadly, how do we, youth unemployment, still there is a group of the Australian population that are young and unemployed. So if we were bolder and really thought about how do we make the most of a scarce resource, how do we reskill, retrain and embrace workforce participation, maybe we'd make some different choices around how we recruit, how we retain and actually um, promote and develop because we are in this tight, tight market. So I think it's a big opportunity. You think it is a big opportunity or do you think they're going to play conservative because it is so tight? Oh, I think you've always got to do both, right? We, we need skilled migration. Yeah, we, um, we certainly have shortages in key areas at the moment. We need immigration more broadly as a community. We're a country built on immigration from very, very deep roots. So we've got to embrace the oldest culture in the world and make sure that we are including them in our workforce, you know, all of our First Nations people. But beyond that, of course, you know, it's a sum and sum. Of course, we need immigration. We need skilled immigration. We need the process to be as smooth as possible. And and we're certainly, you know, keen to see that. But beyond that, I think there is an opportunity still for us to think differently about some of the systems we've put in place that prohibit or limit workforce participation to really get as many people working as possible. Can agree more. Now you said Dad was a bit worried about you. Where, um, yeah, where did you grow up? Where's Mum and Dad from, and what did they do? So I'm an Adelaide girl, uh, through and through until I left to go to university in Queensland, and so all of my family is still very much Adelaide. And both my parents were professionals. Both my parents were lawyers. You know, Mum was a bit of a trailblazer. They were, I think she was the she was the first woman in South Australia to get a Masters of Law degree, and one of the first women to go to the bar. Dad was wholly supportive of that. You know, I remember many an evening when she was doing her master's at night, you know, dad making us toasted sandwiches for dinner. And that was okay because that's how it rolled. And he was a huge advocate of her and her career and and female participation, equal participation um, in the workforce. And that's absolutely been a great role model for me. And he continues to be, you know, one of my my biggest supporters behind my husband, who, uh, you know, obviously is a big part of the cheer squad. Fair enough. Now, you built a career early days in finance, didn't you? I did. I did. Um, it wasn't my natural go-to, but I think at the time, I think everyone kind of said, you need an accounting degree or a law degree, or that's kind of how you get your foot on the ladder. Because yep. slightly later in life, after... So probably uh, later in life, like let's say three years in, mm-hmm. I decided I'd move away from project management and I um, went and worked at Deloitte and did my master's of accounting degree there. So yeah, I kind of stumbled into finance and accounting and uh, it was a fantastic foundation. If you want to talk diversity of thought and based on your experience, I had my experience there in London as well. At a very young age, at the age of 18, we're asked, what are we going to specialize in when we go to university? Mm. If you remember when you go to the UK, you asked, what did you read at university? Ancient law, the classics, the stuff, Geography. I, the stuff I really had interest in. And then later on, I went to you know, one of the chartered accountancy firms, whatever it was, to be schooled up. What are your thoughts about that? Because mm. straight away, we, we're really focused in, I think, sometimes too narrow. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, um, I did a commerce degree and I I loved – I actually didn't do accounting as my major. I loved management and marketing and 
the kind of human side to commerce, if I call it that, you know, loved HR, loved the people part, loved the customer data and where was that all going to take us? And it was pretty much in its infancy in those days. And then when I went to Deloitte, I worked as a a project manager, program manager, leading big teams of people straight out of university. And when I went to Deloitte, I actually did what was called, which was unusual in Australia. Um, They just rolled it out. It was called a conversion course, which on reflection now is terrible branding, right? We were converted into being accountants. And my reflection on that now, as you asked me the question, is that the reason Deloitte were doing that is because they wanted diversity of thought. So they attracted different people who hadn't just studied accounting through that. And often we were older. We were, you know, not straight out of uni. Most people were five, six, seven, eight years experienced in other things. Um, and they were trying diversity in a different way. As I think about the kind of structure of tertiary education now, it is a worry. It is a worry that there is still an expectation in the market that, you know, and from we're training our children to think that you know the answer at 18. Well, Mm. I didn't. I Mm. certainly didn't. And so the counsel I give people I mentor or, um, you know, my children is you're going to have a heap of different careers, right? You're going to have a lot of different experiences. And that's a really good thing. It's a really great thing because we're a long time working and you may as well enjoy and learn, right? So, this desire to learn, I think, is a really and encouraging our children and our teenagers and our youth to be curious and learn, I think, is a is a really important thing because pretty much what most people are going to be taught at university is not what they're going to be practicing and needing to do their jobs in 20 years' time. I think what sort of stands out when I look at your background is the amount of different industries that you've worked in. Mm-hmm. Admittedly, finance was a basis there for some period of time as, you know, as a platform, but, you know, you've jumped from professional services, investment banking, sport, and then airports. Yep. Not easy, but you've had to adapt to every one of them. I encourage that, but a lot of the time here in Australia, you think, oh my God, that's a big risk. Again, that's an embrace from the UK, I think. Yeah, albeit I I can recall having, when I was moving out of sport and into banking slash investment banking, I can remember vividly the conversation with a headhunter or with a recruitment consultant who said to me, oh, you've chopped and changed between different industries and sectors and you need some more continuity on your CV. And, And yeah, I look back now and I thank goodness every time that I've had that experience. And the common thread for me had to be accounting because that was the only way I could get there, debits and credits. And and then the learning was different industries and sectors. And that's where I got my diversity. I think it's going to be different for our children and the generations coming through now, the people in their 20s are going to have to be more agile. They're not necessarily going to have that continuity. And so, Certainly what we're trying to do at Officeworks is actually give them some of those experiences without it necessarily being an industry shift or a business shift, but actually more of a functional shift. So you can rotate people around and they can get breadth of experience to help them bring that different perspective. But yeah, I mean, I look back, I'm consistently, you know, um, grateful that I felt confident enough and had the support of family and friends and mentors to take leaps into different sectors from banking to airports was a big one. That's enormous. And, rem- and Gatwick's not small either. No, and I was actually at BAA, the parent, yeah. um, now delisted before that, and um, was the youngest ever head of IR for a FTSE 100 business at the time. And I remember people saying to me, why are you leaving, you know, this really dynamic banking, you know, one of the biggest banks in the world? It was 
super exciting. We're M&A all the time. Why are you leaving that to go to airports? But it's one of the favorite industries I've worked in because you got so much experience. BAA as a company was the largest private construction client in the UK. So I learned all about construction, all about health and safety. It's where my focus on safety and safety, health and well-being became really deep-rooted in me as a leader mm-hmm. because when you have fatality and you're constantly in a situation where you're learning how to cope with what happens if there's a plane crash, what happens if something, you know, it's real life and death, genuine life and death in that environment, but also a massive retail business, a huge piece of public and private infrastructure where you're constantly on that boundary between protecting the genuine interest of, you know, if Heathrow and Gatwick go down and people can't fly, well, we've seen what that hap- what happens, right? Mm-hmm. It's hugely disruptive to a country. So it was like having six different industries experiences all in one, which was amazing, you know, and a privilege and an opportunity that I I didn't expect I would get. At, you know, I didn't understand why I was joining airports, but I loved it. It was such a foundational period for me. Where did the confidence come from? The big thing around diversity we always hear as males is be careful. Blokes are very quick to put their hands up, as we know, whereas mm. females tend to hold it down, even though they're quite nine times out of 10 better qualified to do the role. Mm. So I'm looking at someone here who's putting a hand up all the time. As you say, you know, the roles you're holding in the UK as a non-UK individual, oh, you didn't come from England, you're an Australian, you're in a tibet in, which is, which we cop that sometimes we're over there. Yeah, we do. <laughs> yeah, um, which is good fun. I've got to take my hat off to you, put your hand up, but what made you different to the others you've seen? Um. I don't, I don't compare myself to others, but if I started with what gives me confidence, which is how you, you started that question, mm. I think there's a couple of things. One is I learned pretty early in my life that life is short and so if you don't, like don't sweat the small stuff and have a crack, right? That's a bit Australian, isn't it, right? I just sounded very Australian. But what's the worst that can happen? So failure for me is is about life and death, right? And it's about the things that are important to me, which is my family, my children, my husband, being a great sister, being a good friend. My identity isn't defined by the job I do. It's very important to me that I spend time with people I like and I feel purposeful and it is a big part of who I am. Don't get me wrong. Otherwise, I wouldn't do what I do and I would just be hanging out with my, you know, family. Um, but I think having having that in my grounding really early on in my life meant that I was courageous to take decisions and sitting behind that is an absolute sponsorship and support network, right? So as long as I'm a good human, coming back to values, as long as I can sleep at night, my father will be proud of me. I'll be proud of me. My husband will be proud of me. My kids will be proud of me. My family will be. So that gives me courage as opposed to being worried about failure in a different way. It's only a job. I say that to people. At the end of the day, it is only a job. Your health and well-being and your safety is the most important thing. And the, the other thing I think in later in life in terms of the more senior roles that I've been fortunate enough and courageous enough to put my hand up for or put my hat in the ring, you know, you don't, you, you've got to actually interview for most of these roles, right? That's and right. make sure you're the right person and it's a right fit both ways is 
learning to choose who you work with and having great sponsors around you. So not mentors, but sponsors. So I'm very grateful for Rob, my boss, and his sponsorship and his ability to challenge me when I think I might not be able to do something to say, put your hand up, put your hand up. And I think not just women, I think men also need that too. Mm. You know, I don't think it's a gender thing. I really think it's about having people in your corner who give you the courage to put your hand up or put your hat in the ring. You're listening to No Limitations with special guest, Sarah Hunter. In our next episode, I sit down with Nick Farr-Jones, Director of Taurus Funds Management and former captain of the Australian Wallabies. For two years leading into that World Cup, or at least 18 months, we'd worked on process. Get the process right, the scoreboard looks after itself. And Michael Liner had the the nerve as the guy who was calling the shots in my absence to call that move. Had it not come off, we would have been on a plane home the next day. I would have retired without doubt, and I'd still be looking at cracks in the ceiling getting wider at uh, 60 years of age at 2 a.m. in the morning. Be sure to join us on our next episode. And now, back to the show. So then a CFO role, something like that, finance and strategy director at Gatwick, is a leadership role. What's leadership to you then? I'm going to get onto the bigger stuff very shortly when you yeah. when you evolve a little bit more in your career, but you're, you're inheriting and you're taking the lead here. Um, look, I think leadership for me starts with this point around authenticity. So it is actually about... It is about recognising it's a choice. Leadership is a choice, yeah? So it's also a privilege. So being constantly alert to the fact that it is a choice, choosing to put yourself in a position that you genuinely want to be in, right? If you don't want to be there, get out of the room, get out of the race, right? So choose the organisation you want to lead or choose the environment you want to be part of and that, that's not just in a business context, you know, make a choice, make a commitment and recognise that, that that's a big part of it. So for me, leadership is a choice and I choose to lead at Officeworks and I choose to be part of this organisation and that's an important reminder. And beyond that, I think it is about constantly investing in your own growth and development, being curious, being true to your values and being authentic. It's about being a leader worth following, right? It's a privilege. So be a leader worth following. Don't just be on the bus with everyone else. Leadership is about investing in yourself and learning and growing and building so that you are a leader worth following in the culture and the organisation you choose to lead. See a lot of different styles in leadership in the UK? Uh, Yeah, a lot of different styles and a lot of commonality (laughs) because people are people. And whilst our cultures are different, there's a lot of similarity still running through our colonial heritage. Mm-hmm. But I think the the challenge around diversity was common. You know, I remember working for when I was at BAA, Margaret Ewing was our CFO and I chose to work, main reason I chose to work in airports and BAA was I wanted to work for one of only two female CFOs in the FTSE 100. Yep. I actually didn't care what industry it was in. I wanted a role model. I wanted to learn from Margaret and for me, that was a choice. And so I worked really hard to get that job and it happened to be head of IR, right? But mm. I would have chosen to do a whole bunch of other jobs for her if I had the privilege of working for her and working with her. So I think for me, cultures are very different leadership styles, absolutely, but I don't know that the geography is the biggest determinant. <laughs> what made you come home? 
a really good job. <laughs> Coles made me come home. Um, and it's interesting because at the time I was finishing up at Gatwick, we'd just sold the business. We'd just been through the GFC and I was actually looking for roles in the UK. I wasn't looking for a role in Australia, but mm-hmm. I was looking for something interesting. I wanted a new sector. I wanted to do something different. I wanted to learn. I kind of felt like I had another sector in me at least, mm-hmm. maybe two. And so it was about finding something interesting to do. Had a great conversation one weekend before Christmas, came out then and saw the Coles team, the turnaround team at Coles, got to know the individuals, got to spend I was very grateful to spend time with, you know, Ian McLeod and Archie Norman and, you know, some titans of retail turnaround. And I thought, I can learn from these people. This is exciting. And uh, we were always Coles shoppers growing up. You know, for me as a kid, I remember all those trips to Coles with my mum. We ate off Coles plates growing up, you know, when we used to have the, before flybys existed, you know, used to have the old little dots used to stick on the thing that sat on the fridge and, um, and I was shocked when I went to the UK at how value had deteriorated for the Australian customer and this Australian consumer. And we were just paying too much for groceries. And it was because there wasn't a competitive, it had become a monopoly instead of a duopoly. Mm-hmm. You know, there needed to be competitive tension. And so it was interesting. It was exciting. That's what brought me home. Where do you reckon you stood out, Nicole's? You mean other than being female? Other than being female, yeah, other than being female, because it's a super competitive sector, correct? And a super in a very, very dynamic period of time. Yeah, very. Yeah. Um, Look, I. It's not for the faint-hearted. No, it's not for the faint-hearted. Certainly builds your resilience. (laughs) Um, That period, you know. No, but to be frank, you know, no turnaround. I've done a couple of turnarounds. No, no turnarounds for the faint-hearted. Right. It uses a different muscle set to the growth mindset. And there's a time and a place for both in every company. Not all leaders are ambidextrous enough to use both, though. I think where I stood out, and, oh, this is terrible, like I don't like answering questions like that, Greg. I think where I stood out is that I was, you know, and I still am very people-focused and very customer-focused. And and I work really hard to try and ask different questions or better questions and challenge myself. You know, rather than we've just always done it that way, and I'm not up for change for the sake of change, but actually why? And is that delivering us the best outcome? And is that delivering the best experience for the customer or the best experience for our team? And it's when you get in retail, it's when you get the customer experience and the team member experience aligned, that's where the special source is. Is it an addictive industry? Yes. And some of that's good and some of that's bad. Um Retail gets in your blood because you have, you can touch it and you can, like it's customer, it's right there. If you're an extrovert like me, it's where I get my energy from. When we have our senior leaders together, when I'm out in store, when I'm out in our CFCs, it's the part of my role I love. It's the part I really struggle with, with financial services, actually, the non-retail part. You know, I loved the branches. I loved being out in amongst the team and that part of it. But it was actually really hard to connect with. So I think in that respect, it always gets in your blood and you can see meaningful difference quite quickly and change quite quickly. Um, I think the other thing, the, maybe the negative to the addictive side of it is when you can see business performance change so quickly yeah. on a daily basis, even, you know, last hour, what was sales, next hour, 
that can be really distracting. So that can be a really negative side to the immediacy that can can be a real risk in terms of you going off track with your medium and long-term plans. So um, there's real strengths and real weaknesses to that. So how did the current role come about? How did you make the transition? What were you working on to get tapped on the shoulder to make the move? Well, I'd be pleased to know I wasn't just tapped on the shoulder. There was a process. (laughs) So that's the first thing. And I think that that is really important because I think one of the challenges often as a senior female leader, mm-hmm. is that I, I still get asked, did I get my job because of some quota that Rob had around female diversity, right? I was asked that question anonymously when I first joined at Officeworks many times over in various team member surveys, right? So I think it's, it is really, really important for me to keep saying I went through a process and I made a choice to be part of that process. Mm. But yes, you know, when the role became, I was running the demerger at Coles on behalf of Coles and West Farmers yep. to, to get the demerger away, which, you know, was extremely important for shareholders and extremely important for both leadership teams that that was successful um, and the largest and fastest demerger in Australian corporate history. So the faint hearted. Yep. And when Mark Ward, my predecessor, decided he was going to retire and move on to different things, the opportunity became available. And and it was Rob reaching out and saying, why don't you consider putting your hand up? So that was the nudge. Yeah. But we were talking about other roles and there was a there was a process of but I may not have considered myself fully capable of doing the role if Rob hadn't have just given me a bit of a nudge. So I am I am grateful for him, you know. He gave me a nudge. I had said to him, I want to run a business. That's what I thought I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So it's always a two-way conversation. But would I have had the courage, and to be honest, right in the middle of the demerger, we were very, very busy with that, would I have had the courage to be thinking about this as a next opportunity? Probably not. So, no, I'm grateful. So if you look at it, what were you short on then? As you said, you know, you had the courage, but uh, Rob gave you a bit of a push, supportive push. But you being, you know, you're analysing the business. I'm sure you would have done personally. Where, where do you think you were short? Because it is a step up. Yeah, if I'm really frank, it, it wasn't about intellectually being short. Again, I think good leaders should be able to understand where your strengths and weaknesses are and how you build a team around you so that collectively you make the best decisions. Um, so I knew I hadn't done merchandise, but I was very commercial. So I backed myself on those, for example. And for me, I hadn't run an enter in P&L of this scale and been in the MD seat. So that was that took courage, but I thought I could put support around me to help me with that. And the West Farmers team were very, very supportive around giving me that help. Probably the biggest question, if I'm honest, in my mind was the sacrifice for my family. And actually whether it was worth it. I've got three young children. Um, I came from parental leave with my second child. I was I was on parental leave when Rob rang and said, can you run the demerger? I was six months into parental leave. I didn't have a nanny and it was kind of happening. So for me at the time with two young children, that was the biggest question. Actually not am I intellectually capable of doing it? was actually emotionally based on the commitment it would require for me to do it in a way I was proud of. Was I ready to do that? And and was that a commitment I wanted to make? You know, that was time away from them. When you looked at what was presented, 
and you walked away and obviously you've come to your conclusion and you decided to take it on. What did you envisage in the sense of where are you going to take it and has it sort of lived up to that that plan? I didn't quite envisage the last three and a half years because I didn't envisage a global pandemic. I didn't envisage, you know, the level of disruption that we've seen both from a personal perspective, lockdown, supply chain, all of like there's no rule book for that, right? Mm. So there's just no rule book. And the level of toll it takes on humanity, you know, on my organisation, it's just second, like it's just we've not seen anything like it. I don't think I've seen, I've certainly not seen it in my working career and the number of people I talk to have probably not seen it in my lifetime. So I don't think the role turned out anything like I envisaged it to be based on the external factors that have happened. The part that is common, though, that has consistently surprised me and on the bad days, because there are hard days and there are bad days, kept me going is actually how much I love the team and how much I see opportunity in the business and in the brand. So everything I expected around the ability to shift the culture, the ability to build new businesses, the ability to um, unlock the ambition of the organisation is absolutely there and in spades. And really, again, back to allow our team to be the best versions of themselves so they give their most, you know, the best that they can to Officeworks. You know, I think that my ability to unlock it. So that surprised me on the upside, but the job in, in the round has turned out nothing like I expected, mostly because of all the externalities we've had to deal with. How do you actually unlock no, it's an easy word to use, but there's a lot behind that. And yeah. also, I assume you're unlocking yourself a little bit as well. Yeah, you are. Look, I think, again, you know, you can read a lot about purpose-led organisations, authentic leadership, culture. Um, I think if you look at actually tertiary education in the US and Europe at the moment, they're teaching far more in the syllabus around culture and the importance of humanity in how you unlock performance and high performance. I've had a mentor around it who is a coach who specialises in high-performing teams and high-performance, the corporate anthropologist I mentioned before. And so I think it is about recognising that it's a journey to learn how to, how to do it. And all the things we've talked about today are contributors, right? But it does come back to, I keep saying, for me, it comes back to being a leader worth following. And if I'm a leader worth following and my team are a team of leaders worth following, people will follow. For the benefit of the audience out there, what actually is Officeworks? Aside from being um, one of, well, the third most trusted brand in Australia, I think Officeworks, put simply, is a business that helps its customers make bigger things happen. That's our purpose. Mm-hmm. So you can start so many things at Officeworks. So we're a business that allows people to start things and we support them on their journey. So that starting might be the first day of school. That starting actually might be you're learning how to read and write and learning your numbers. Like my youngest at the moment, she's two and a half and she's using all of our puzzles at the moment that you get in the Kadink range and learning her fine motor skills. So it's learning how to be creative, learning a new hobby. So all the way through the customer life cycle, Officeworks is a business that has evolved its range over time. You know, when we started 28 years ago, we didn't sell any laptops. (laughs) You know, now look at our business. But the thing that 
has stayed true to us. It's about that customer focus, about helping them make bigger things happen. So start a new business, start a new hobby, first day at school, first uni assignment, however we can help our customers make bigger things happen is what we're about. And what's the scale of it, Sarah? So we've got 167 stores, over 9,000 team members across Australia. We are Australian and proudly, you know, in the Australian landscape, Mm -hmm. a huge online business. So we talk about our stores. Our number one store is online. Well over a billion dollars we do in sales online and we'll do this year. And, And that scale has only grown through what we've seen with COVID. And look, really proudly, we're also part of the community in which we live and work. So we have a very strong sustainability agenda This year alone, we will have contributed with our customers over $7 million to education and keeping children uh, in education and learning, as well as supporting reforestation and the rehabilitation of Australia through our partnership with Greening Australia to plant every two trees for every one sold. So every time you buy a wood fibre or paper-based product at Officeworks, Mm -hmm. we're planting two for every one sold. So for us, it, it isn't just about, you know, We proudly deliver great performance for our shareholders, but it's also about being part of our community to deliver that long-term sustainable return for shareholders. So when I look at your your adverts, which ones do you think will be the most successful connecting with your customers? Well, we recently, I know um, we talked about it earlier, Greg, offline, we recently had our new brand campaign, Start Something at Mm -hmm. Officeworks, which goes to my point around our purpose around helping to make bigger things happen supporting the entrepreneurialism and the education of Australia. But also the one that really connected with me is we did for the first time a TV ad on our partnership with Greening Australia to Restore Australia in the last 12 months. And that was the most connected our customers and um, have felt with Officeworks. They loved that ad. The scores were off the charts in terms of their pride to shop with Officeworks and how that made them feel. It made them feel like if they had to buy paper anywhere, best they buy it somewhere that's actually making a difference for people on the planet. How does a mum do all this? You've gone through COVID, you're leading a business. So how do you do it? I think recognising that, um, you know, people use the term work-life balance and I always say to people, just delete balance. (laughs) It's about a juggle right? It's a constant juggle and being laser focused at home and at work on what matters most. So at home, being present and knowing what matters most for my three children and where they want to spend time with mum. So they don't, what matters most to them is not whether the bathroom's clean or the floors are clean. What matters most to them is that I read them a story at night or that I make their birthday cake or that I'm there for the school assembly when it happens in real life or virtually. Um, I'm there for the moments that matter. So for me, it's just making sure that I ruthlessly prioritise the moments that matter instead of all of the day-to-day. And that's about also about just being present for those conversations. You know, the moment that matters might be walking the dog around the block with my son, you know, and having a conversation genuinely about what happened at school today um, or which footy team he wants to play for and supporting that conversation. 
And then at work, it's the same, actually. It's just trying to recognize that there aren't enough hours in the day. So, how do you get better and better and better at being really focused on the moments that matter for your team and for the business and making not necessarily the right decisions, but often it's just about making a decision with that right focus. So, being present, you, you can't be everywhere, right? You've got, I've got I've got an Australia-wide business. There are plenty of things I would like to do that are sitting in the back of my mind that I would have loved to have got done in the last 12 months, but actually being really focused on what matters most for my team and for my customers helps me get the juggle right. And then just to be honest, being honest that you don't always get it right. (laughs) You drop some stuff, life intervenes, you know, uh, you get COVID, we get gastro in the house, you know, like, like, and just recognizing that it is what it is. And at the end of the day, your health and well-being is the most important thing. And it's still just a job. So who you surround yourself with is absolutely critical, isn't it? Absolutely critical. Absolutely critical. You need um, an amazing woman once said to me, you need your boardroom in your corner. But the most important boardroom you need in your corner is your support crew, right? It's who's around you in your personal boardroom. Yeah, right. Hopefully some of those are people you also work with, (laughs) but actually who's around you in your personal boardroom that you can ask for help from. I'll share a personal story. You'll love this. When my nanny got COVID, it was just diabolical, right? So we were all the wheels, you know, as a mum of three kids and a husband who is a CEO and works full-time and me working full-time, it's just the rhythm is really important, the rhythm to how we do things. Mm -hmm. We've got to be a well-oiled machine. And my nanny was really, really unwell with COVID for two weeks. And when that happens and you've got no family around, you can't be afraid to ask for help. And I found some help from talking to someone who talked to someone who knew someone in Queensland, who knew someone in Victoria, where I'm based. Right. Like, literally, I just, I emailed and rang everyone I know to say, can anyone help me? I'm not too proud to ask for help. So, you need a really good support network around you. But also, if you're too proud to ask for help, it's going to be really hard. It's going to be really hard to get the juggle right. Because the one thing that the last two and a half years has told us is you can't expect a rhythm the way that we used Mm. to. So you've got to kind of say, I don't know the answer to that at work. Help me understand it. Help me learn. Or I don't know how I'm going to make that happen. Can someone, one of the parents I know help or can someone lean in and help? Yeah. You talked about the support crew or the boardroom. Yeah. Who do you go to when you think this is a big call I've got to make? Do you bounce it off? Do you, you said I think you had a mentor yeah. or a coach? Or had, yeah. You know, and, and I know in the day-to-day you make swift decisions and good decisions, et cetera. And as you say, yeah. you can't get them always right. But on the big ones which count, at the end of the day, that's what the chief execs paid the big dose for. How do you go about it? I think it really is dependent on the decision, Greg. You know, there are some decisions that are two-way doors and some that are one-way doors. And I think the most important thing is – in the first instance, is being aware of that. You know, some are big decisions, but there are ways out of them, right? There are choices you can make, but as long as you're stepping forward in the direction of the outcome you want to get to, even though it might be a big decision, 
the reality is you've still got break glass options along the way or actually arguably you might end up in a better place by being a little less wedded to a certain path and actually a little bit more open to different choices. Then there are some decisions, often people-based decisions that are that are harder, right? But, you know, if you're making choices around the structure of your organisation or your cost base, mm-hmm. some of those choices are really hard to unwind. So you go in eyes wide open to them. And then, I, as I said, I've got a suite of people that I ask advice from. I'm not too proud to say I'll ring and say, what about this or what about that? And that includes my team. I rely on them a lot. We talk talk about pitching and catching. What does that mean? You're pitching and catching at your The good old sport analogy, right? (laughs) You're going to pitch and catch. And you want on those, when we sit together as a team and we recognise that this is not just a big decision financially, but actually has ramifications strategically that mean, or or for people, that mean that it's, you can't undo it once you've done it. Yeah. Then- you want to make sure you're all aligned. And so let's pitch and catch it around. Make sure we're fully convinced that that, that is the right path and then we go. So sometimes those people are in my team, but as you said, as a CEO, as a managing director, you can't always debate it with your team. So you need other people around you. And of course, my boss is one of them. He is part of my team in that regard. And we're very fortunate with the West Farmers model that we have that opportunity with divisional autonomy, but the support and guidance for those big decisions from our board and from the West Farmers team as well. Okay. And as you've developed as a leader, and bearing in mind, you come from the bedrock of accountancy, which is analysis. Yep. How much is analysis coming into adverse intuition now as you're getting more experienced? <sighs> um, well, gut instinct. Yeah, it's a really interesting one because if I flip the question around to you, mm-hmm. how much do you think of retail traditionally is gut versus data? I reckon 90% gut. Yeah. Um, yeah no doubt. You, you, some of the best analysts in the country come out of retail. We know mm. that. But the best retailers in the world just have that unbelievable feel. Mm. And an unbelievable feel for the customer. Correct. So I think it's a really interesting situation that retail finds itself in. The traditional amazing retailers of history are absolutely from the shop floor and and from the shop floor where they understand because that gave them a really intimate understanding and judgment around what the customer wanted. But I'm not walking along the shop floor at the moment, am I? No, you're not. And that's the really interesting situation that retail finds itself in. So we are having to upskill many of our traditional retailers in how you think differently about data and online. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the online pure play retailers who their whole system is based on data. So it's a very interesting situation. And as a every channel retailer where a very large proportion of my sales come from online, now let's call it 35 plus percent come from online and the rest from stores. There are not many examples of that globally where you see an kind of an ambidextrous organization that does data and online and digital as well as traditional bricks and mortar. And it is, it's a morphing of capability across our organization because we are trying to bring those two together for the benefit of the customer. Because what we know is that the customers who shop both channels or across every channel, because we also have a B2B business and a B2B sales team, 
customers that shop every channel are the most valuable. So it's beholden on us to actually learn to be able to do both, right? Learn to walk and chew gum. Like we've got to be great at data and also not lose our trading instinct because our trading instinct is what has made most of the big retail businesses successful in the last 30 plus years or in Coles' case, 100 plus years, you know. So I think it's a really interesting dynamic. It's a really interesting time in retail. Analysis is paralysis, right? But actually using data smartly for the betterment of the customer and the customer experience is just, is not that far from what we've always done, right? It's just that that data was gleaned traditionally in one store on the shop floor, you know, when Officeworks had one store or two stores. And now, given the scale of our organisation, that data needs to be gleaned from our online store as well as our in-store experience and then applied across a much bigger business. So as an organisation, what do you think you could do better? Oh, lots of things. If I didn't say we could do lots of things better, I wouldn't see all the opportunities for improvement. And that's that's the exciting part, right? We could do in terms of sales, you know, there's so many parts of our business where we're less than 10% of the market in Australia, where we have huge opportunities for growth. B2B is one area. Education is another. You know, we're very much known on the B2C side for mm. education, but not on the B2B side. You oh, know, really? So we're building okay. an education business to support schools, primary and secondary schools across Australia Mm -hmm. to bring great value to them, right, and bring great quality products so that they can invest in what matters most, which is the teachers delivering a great education to our children. Mm -hmm. So huge opportunities on the top line. Um, FlexiWorks is another one for us where we look at the, the change in corporate Australia around flexible and hybrid working and think about what opportunities we can create to support Australian corporates embrace flexibility and make hybrid working work. Again, I come back to my passion around workforce participation. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to see parents, team members, employees able to juggle their lives in a way that works for the employer and the employee. You know, I think variety of people have a variety of caring responsibilities, not just parents. You know, I've got a number of work colleagues now who are caring for parents and are at that stage in their their lives and their family. So, therefore, it's supporting that whole journey. And I really think hybrid working can unlock something in terms of workforce participation for Australia if we get it right. So, where are you at on that as a group? Yeah, have well, you, look, have you I cracked it or? yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, I, I don't think anyone's cracked it. No. Um, we just sent out a comms earlier today, and if I wasn't sitting here talking to you, I'd have a mask on. <laughs> we're back to that. Yep. Um, oh, we're back I to think, that now, are we? Yeah, I think we're we're just, you know, given what's happening with COVID and influenza and everything else, I think um, we're being really conscious of health and safety. But I think where we're at as a team, more specifically, is Look, retailers have always been great at flexibility. We've had flexibility on the shop floor for decades. Where we've not embraced that same flexibility historically is actually in our support centres. So we launched a new um, flexible working policy about 18 months ago. And now we are trying to really do our best to find the right balance between moments that matter for our team and our culture and productivity as well as health and well-being, because being connected to people 
and reconnecting post a period of lockdown is so important to people's mental health and well-being. And then more broadly than that, we're trying to take a leadership role and talk about it in the Australian corporate environment. We've launched this platform called FlexiWorks mm-hmm. because so many businesses came to us at the start of the pandemic and said, help, we do not know how to get all of our people working from home. How can you help us? So we're continuing that conversation around how do we keep helping so we all find a sustainable model. Sarah, I'm getting told, and this is a little bit, maybe a bit controversial, but a number of CEOs, when they speak very privately to us headhunters, mm. are saying, for all that chat, productivity's down. And What's the question? <laughs> well, should it be down? Are they getting it wrong? Are you, is your productivity up? I think it is some and some. Like all of these things, you can't mm. use a sledgehammer to crack a nut. One policy is not going to set the tone for every individual, nor does it replace a conversation between the individual and the line manager or the rhythm of the team. So I can't sit here and say that there's, you know, I've got very different teams in my organisation and they need different things in terms of their work rhythm and their pattern of work. For me, I think blanket statements like that are dangerous. They were dangerous before COVID. They are dangerous even in this time, because what works to create that right rhythm, for example, for my team on the shop floor and the right roster for that store, even between stores might be different based on the customer trading patterns. The same might be said of a project team, a project team that's working on our digital platform to stand up something new that has different deadlines to the team that's working on how do we get all of our back-to-school supplies on shore. So I think for me, I start from a position of a policy is absolutely critical, but it is not a replacement for team member line manager engagement, nor has it ever been a replacement for good conversation about what the right culture is in an organisation or how do you get stuff done in the best possible, in our case, lowest cost way. The one thing I would say that worries me the most about what we've been through in the last two and a half years, three years, Mm -hmm. is that what we've experienced hasn't been sustainable. So it isn't the future. And if people assume that being told by government to go and work from home is our sustainable working model going forward, well, then that's a disaster, right? So that's, that's not sustainable. It is about finding that right balance to be productive, maintain the culture, maintain the health and well-being of your team. And I worry about the team that I that we haven't seen for two years, mm. two and a half years. I worry about their health and well-being. So for us, we've said we hope and we think the moments that matter for our team will see them in here about two to three days a week in our support center. That's what we think. But it does depend on what you're working on. If you're working on a project with really tight deadlines that needs to get done and that's the outcome we need to deliver the return on the investment we're making, you might be in here four or five days a week. It just depends on the team and the work that's being done. What's the biggest challenges you're facing now? I think, honestly, the biggest challenge right now is that it is, uh, I'm going to narrow it down to three. One is... The continued external volatility, and I bank inflation squarely in that camp, and what does that mean for consumer confidence, business confidence, 
Um, you seeing it wine starting to wane, or where are you seeing it? I think it's very varied, depending on the geography, depending on the sector, and that's no different to what we've seen through COVID up until this point. Mm-hmm. Right? It's very varied. So that's why I come back to that externally driven volatility mm-hmm. is is a real challenge, mm-hmm. and making sure to the best of our ability, we're anticipating that enough and still sticking to our knitting of what we can control, right? So we've got to be really focused. I'm coming back to this word. This is my word. My two words for 2023 are focus or refocus and reconnect. So that that focus on controlling what we can control and anticipating volatility rather than expecting it to end. Okay. So that's one. The second one, I've got another one for is that reconnect. It's the personal resilience, the resilience of the organisation. You know, I stare and I look at my annual leave liability (laughs) and with that retention and engagement, continued workforce participation, it's the people side. So refocus to deliver the commercial returns that are needed in a continuing to be disrupted environment and the reconnect with people, making sure that they are safe, healthy and well and they have the resilience to keep participating and bringing their best performance as part of a team to Officeworks. Are we too quick as a nation to talk it down? When you think about it, the amount that's going to be spent on infrastructure in this country and yet we're hearing the word recession, recession, recession coming up so much, we're quick to scream that. Do you think we're too fast to do that? Uh, look, it's not it's not something that keeps me awake at night. I think about where are the data points that I can understand around how my customers are feeling. That's really important to me, as opposed to what a headline is reading across a newspaper. I think in times of volatility, you could put a whole lot of economists in a room and come up with a whole lot of different answers. I'm very respectful of economists, but that's just the reality, right? Yes. So. You could spend a lot of time worrying about that stuff. I think what matters most to me is where are the fundamentals of my business, being very focused on that, and what are my customers telling me so that where we can make change, we do make change as quickly as we can. How are you travelling? And I actually mean that in all genuineness because there's a lot of people out there somewhat fatigued. It's hard work, right? It's really hard work. Um, I tell you what, I am such a better human after finally getting my COVID rescheduled three times holiday in over Easter, uh, you know, I think, you know, I've said to my team this year is the year we all take our leave, right? Because I think not just in senior roles, but in any role, given the intensity of the external environment and the change that's happening around us at the moment, the importance to find that connection back to yourself and the energy to keep keep positive and keep going and bring that passion back to work, it takes it takes energy. And so, look, I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. And I'm super excited to be able to have some time off in the September school holidays coming up soon and had a week off with the kids uh, in the most recent school holidays. And I'm just, I'm booking my leave and that's helping me fill back up and recharge and re-energise myself. Okay. Well, when you come back re-energised, what are we going to look forward to in the next couple of years for Officeworks? What's going to change? Oh, look, I think um, we set out a strategy three years ago and look, whilst within that strategy, let's use a word that I would never have used in a podcast three years ago. We've had to pivot. Oh, God, no. 
I had to get it in, one of those COVID words. I think we've done an amazing job of pivoting and that's in the detail. I think what's in in the future for Officeworks is continued profitable sales growth and continued evolution of our culture and our strategy around putting people and planet at the heart of our decision-making and hopefully being a leading force for the next generation of retail in Australia. Um, How do we proudly put our foot down now and embrace some of the opportunities we see ahead of ourselves? Customer experience, how's that going to change? It's changed a lot in the last two to three years. I think it's going to change, particularly as we see generational shift. I think if I had my crystal ball out, I would say Australians love shopping in stores. We've learnt that through COVID. So I actually think Australian retail being confident about investing in its store network, we've been doing that through COVID. We've invested and reflowed the range in over 70 of our stores. We've got another 60 to go. Three, four years ago, people used to say a store's dead. No, not at all. Customers love shopping in stores. So I think for the customer experience, what does the next iteration of that in-store experience look like is definitely in our future. And the other thing I think is we're just going to get smarter about how we use data to really personalise that customer experience and make it relevant. Not creepy, creepy is bad, but relevant for a customer so that they really love shopping how they want and when they want, and it's easy and engaging. Now, speaking of which, you opened up a sustainable store at Eastern Creek. Yeah. Okay. Well, what does that actually mean? I've been kind of on the journey of sustainability. It used to be called CSR. I'm old enough to remember when it was called that. And it used to be a separate part of a business that no one ever really talked about, just got trotted out at results time. I think good leading businesses, regardless of sector, have sustainability embedded in their decision making. So for us, a sustainable store isn't something that is dramatically different from what you would see in an ordinary office work store. But what it means is it's got solar panels on the roof. It's got great waste targets. We recycle now nearly more than 90% of our operational waste. It has our full greener choices range on sale. So this is a range we've bought that allows customers to make a choice as to whether they want to buy a product that is even more sustainable. And it's embedding it through our network and through our fleet. But specifically for Eastern Creek, if you popped up on the roof, you would see it is covered in solar panels. And it also has like all of our stores, a recycling station at the front of store, because part of how we contribute to the circular economy is allowing people to bring back a lot of the products that we sell. They like to be able to bring back the pens that they've used before they buy a new one. Um, They like to be able to bring back the mobile phone that they used before they buy a new one or as part of that transaction. So a sustainable store for us is one that is really um, represents sustainability through our decision-making. And Eastern Creek is a great example. Change tact for a second here. Yeah. As a female, have you ever been roadblocked because you're a female in your career? Oh, yeah. You have? Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I can definitely put my hand up. We just relaunched our sexual harassment policy in the workplace and our, our zero tolerance for it. And I am absolutely one of those people who can hand on heart say I've been sexually harassed in the workplace, not in my current workplace. And 
not in my recent career history, but I can think back to times in my career where that's happened. And part of that is about putting in roadblocks for people, you know. Harassment is about marginalising people. But I can also think of times when I have been, I gave the example earlier on, where I've had roadblocks put in place because I'm too young. Or I could think of a bunch of labels that get used for people that create those roadblocks. You know, it's not just gender. It's, it can be a variety of things. So if we look at some stats, as I'm sure you have, and you said you're a member of CEW. Yeah. Well, I'm not getting bowled over by the amount of female CEOs or CFOs calling the shots. What's, what's going on? No, and it, unfortunately the stats are it's even worse in retail considering we're such a large employer of women within the breadth of our workforce. Um, I think it's a good question and I think a lot of the work that CEW has done to shine a light on this and now with the you know work that the government is doing both at state and federal level to really understand how some of the systems we've put in place as a society are prohibiting women from accelerating their careers and making the choice, to be honest, to say, I can't find that balance. So it's easier for me to be at home with the family or or take on board more caring responsibilities at home. Mm. I think the data is there. It's been there for decades. That's not new news. No. It's just about us changing our systems. So well, some, that- Sarah, but something's not right in the sense of that, right? I hear what you're saying. I also do look at numbers and as a search guy, I've got to look at every day of the week. The big key decision makers yep. hasn't moved at all in the last three no. or four years by any form of no. percent. And in fact, I could almost argue, if I want to cut it up and dice it again, that um, during COVID, you probably went backwards. Yeah. So if I was really harsh, I would say, Greg, like promotes like. You think so, do you? Yeah, unless you're bold. Unless you can embrace diversity and a different face or a different style or a different perspective and you're up for that debate. I just sort of wonder, you know, because the messaging somehow is not working, is it? Well. You know, slowly, slowly. Yes, in the bo- in the boardroom we're getting more, but in the number one where the buck stops with the CEO, that, that, that hasn't really grown. Yeah. And look, I think I can't speak for other organisations or other CEOs, but I'm really proud to be part of West Farmers where that has changed. You know, when I started as the MD of Officeworks, I was the only operating MD. We've now got Nicole and Emily as part of our team and a very strong female leadership team through other senior roles at West Farmers. And it sits across the board as well. You know, we have some fabulous female leaders sitting on our board at West Farmers. So I guess I can only comment on what I see other than the data. And what I see is deliberate choices from our board and from our leadership team. And I run a business that's balanced leadership, Greg. I've got through the layers of the organisation. So if I talk about my personal experience and what I've seen, those are choices I've made. I've fought harder to find women or younger people or people with different ethnicity or different backgrounds and try and put them into roles because I passionately believe in diversity of thought. And that takes courage. And when times are tough, maybe through crisis, through COVID, maybe people are a little less courageous. Mm. But but for me, I think it does come down to leadership. It does come down to the choices that you make and the people you appoint as the leader. And often it is said like appoints like because that's safe. 
It doesn't necessarily, in fact, the data tells you it doesn't deliver the shareholder return. It doesn't deliver you top quartile shareholder returns. The more diverse your business is, the more you represent your customer base, the better choices you'll make around engaging your customers and the better return you'll deliver for shareholders. So it does surprise me that with all the research and all the data out there that boards aren't seeing that, that boards aren't embracing the opportunity to deliver better returns for their shareholders. And what advice would you, I guess, pass on to those who are building their careers um, who you know, are going to be like yourself, facing some challenges along the way? How does one handle themselves? I think it's very important in your career that you are curious and that you are humble. It's part of the reason why I hate doing these podcasts, if I'm honest. <laughs> I'm not a person who ever likes to talk about themselves particularly, unless it's for the greater good of the organisation that I work for and what we're trying to achieve. I have seen a lot of leaders get so wedded to an idea or a strategy or a plan because it's their baby, it's their thing, it's just, it's so part of their identity. So that humility and the curiosity to explore and challenge yourself to be better and want to learn, particularly as the volume of change that's happening in the external environment and in business now is so great, Mm -hmm. if you're very wedded to one path, you might not ultimately end up going there and you might end up on a different journey that delivers a far better return for shareholders and a far better commercial outcome. So I think humility and curiosity would be the two pieces of advice I would give. Okay. Not that I like giving advice. <laughs> no, no, I'm not taken. I'm, I'm listening. Um, yeah, but the aim of the exercise is to create the necessary debate. That's what it's all yeah, about. It and what you've done has been remarkable. If we look Thanks. back, if we look back, Sarah, and if you yeah. were to look back at that young lady starting that career, leaving university, moving into, I think it was Deloitte's, wasn't it? Yeah. What advice would you give her now? It's an interesting thing. I wouldn't unwind any choice I've made in my career because I think you can spend a lot of time looking back. It's about how you learn from all of those experiences to look forward and you've got to learn from the good and the bad to be who you are. So I'd just say to her, keep keep being curious. I think early days in my career and maybe even maybe even still now at times, you know, there's still a moment where you want to have an impact and, you know, my boss would have probably said I was in a hurry to make an impact. So, you know, be calm but be true to yourself and keep being curious and learn and embrace new opportunities when they come to you. You're never going to stop learning. I'm never going to stop learning. Every day I learn something new. And so just embrace that and roll with it. That's what I'd say to my younger self. Um, In fact, it's what I say to myself when I wake up in the morning today too. (laughs) So on that, Sarah, it's been an absolute pleasure having this discussion. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And look, I think, you know, it wouldn't be worth me doing a podcast without getting a plug in. I always love feedback. So um, I look forward to receiving some feedback on the back of this podcast from my customers out there who are listening. It's only through feedback and asking the question that you get to be a better business or, or improve the customer experience. So I look forward to feedback. And my plug would be that um, if we can help you start something in your business or in your personal life or for your family or friends, then, you know, if you haven't shopped at Officeworks recently, jump online or come into store and hopefully we can help you make bigger things happen. 
Well, on that, you've been listening to No Limitations. Thanks a lot, Sarah. Thank you.